Well, hey, grab your Bibles and go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. The series is called Church Under Construction. And this morning, Paul is continuing to take (laughs) hammer and saw and axe to the church in Corinth because there is a lot of work that needs to be done. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians 4 this morning. Maybe you haven't heard, but each year the village of Orland Park hosts a race. Have you heard of this? It's known as the turkey trot. Have any of you ever participated in the turkey trot? It's for people who want to burn some calories before Thanksgiving comes around, you know, so then you can just go ahead and feast uh, at Thanksgiving. Well, they started this several years back, uh, and and they realized that the kids wanted to run too. So um, they added this thing last year called the turkey trot junior. It's like so that the kids can run and burn some energy along with the parents. But this year, for the first time ever, they added an infant heat of the race. It's called the Diaper Dash. And we've got some pictures here. Uh, for one, two, three-year-olds even, they let them run these races here. they got a turkey out there running the track. And uh, this next picture is just kind of the funny thought of letting toddlers run in a, in a marathon race. <laughs> and uh, it's hard enough to keep them on track. Maybe they get one or two. Maybe two laps down, and then, you know, they lose interest. <laughs> but what's funny is the, the thought of a diaper dash, of, of an infant running in a competitive race. This is kind of silly. Um, but it's very relevant to today's message. Because the Apostle Paul is very distressed over what's going on in Corinth. He's already referred to them in chapter 3, verse 1. as a, He's referred to this church as a bunch of babies. All right? In love, he said that. And he, he, when he looks at them, he sees spiritually the diaper dash. The church in Corinth, they're just acting like a bunch of... If their spiritual walk was like a race, they were racing like a bunch of babies in diapers. Okay? And he wants them to grow up. He wants them to mature, and he wants them to get in with the adults, spiritually speaking. He says this morning in 4.16, I urge you then to be imitators of me. You see... This church in Corinth, they were stuck in a prolonged spiritual infancy. And understand that we as a church, uh, you as an individual, you can get stuck in a prolonged spiritual infancy. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been in a church. All right? You can get stuck in an infancy. Call it held up in a pair of huggies. Call it paralyzed in a pair of pampers. I don't know, but there you are. And you're supposed to be all grown up. And and instead, you're doing the diaper dash. This morning, this text speaks to us as a church. Because if we're not careful, our church can get held up. Um, How does it happen? Well, it could happen through doctrinal drift. It can happen through moral compromise. It can happen through factious infighting. Uh, But it is a very real danger for our church and for us. We could just turn into a bunch of babies real fast. So let's heed this message this morning, and as Paul speaks to the church in Corinth, let's hear God speaking to us, trying to grow our church up. title this morning is Three Marks of Maturity that We Must Emulate from the Apostle Paul. So check out verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, and uh, he begins by saying this, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, here's the first mark of maturity. You can jot this down. Uh, I am preparing for God's judgment. I am preparing for God's judgment. It's a mark of maturity. My conduct reflects preparation for the day that my life will be evaluated in, uh, in front of Jesus Christ. And there are three sub-points here for how he is preparing for judgment, how we are to prepare for judgment. So jot this down. By acting like a servant in charge of God's stuff. Uh, there's two words here that Paul uses for himself. He says, I am a servant of Christ. Uh, I love that word. The word originally meant under rower. It's a compound word, under rower. Uh, and back then they would have these ships, these warships. We've got a picture of one of them. Uh, and and uh, they were ramming ships. So, uh, you know, they would get all of these uh, oarsmen, these crew members, uh, to man these oars, and they would have all these uh, commands to steer the ship in a certain direction. Uh, and then they would try and ram the other ships. And under rower referred to, do you see those oars coming out of the very bottom? Boy, how'd you like to be down there when you're in a uh, kamikaze giant missile boat? Okay, uh, that's the, where the word originated. And then it just came to mean like somebody who's just a servant. But under rower, he says, I am a servant. I am an under rower. Uh, in other words, I, I'm just a crew member. I, I'm not the captain. Okay, now you got to get this about yourself. I want you to understand this. So look to the person next to you and say, you ain't the captain. Just say it. You ain't the captain. Okay, look at him again and say, you're Gilligan. You're when you think of yourself, and if, if this was a ship, you're, you're like Gilligan. How does that make you feel? <laughs> not great. And the Apostle Paul said, I, I'm just the Gilligan, okay? I'm not steering the ship. I'm just a servant. Then he uses another word. He says steward. Now, this word means house manager. So, like, God's the owner of the estate, and he is just like a house manager, just like somebody who kind of runs. So, so, okay, look at that person again, because they haven't gotten it yet. Okay, and say, you, you don't, you're not Daddy Warbucks. Say, say that to him. You're Punjab. See little orphan Annie? You're, you're one of the house managers. You're not Daddy Warbucks. All right? If you don't think, if we don't think rightly about ourselves, then we are surely not going to get God's church right. How are we preparing for judgment? Well, we're acting like a servant. We're in charge of God's stuff. We're not the captain. We're not the owner. He is. And specifically here, we're servants and stewards of what? Well, it says of his mysteries. What does that mean? Well, if you check back at 2, verses 7 to 10, we learn that the mysteries of God were the truths about Christ and salvation, which God kept hidden in the past, but he disclosed in the New Testament. So I'm not talking about these secret truths that I'll pull out and, you know, give me some, uh, give me some money and I'll reveal them to you. This is the now disclosed, fully revealed truth about Christ and salvation. You got that? We are now stewards of of the gospel. And God cares how we handle his word in his church. John MacArthur, in his commentary, mentioned a pastor in a Christian magazine who sadly decided that he was no longer going to preach the word of God to his people. Uh, let me read what this pastor wrote. He said, quote, I decided that the pulpit was no longer to be a teaching platform, but instead an instrument of Christian therapy. I no longer preach sermons, I create experiences. That's sad. 
and unfortunate because here it says that he who has been given a trust or uh, he who has been made a steward must be found trustworthy. Uh, that can be translated must prove faithful. Um, do you understand that we have to think rightly about ourselves? We're just servants and God has given us this thing called the gospel and we have to rightly get out there and spread it with other people. Uh, do you get that? That we're just servants of God's stuff. It's his church. It's his truth. It's his stuff. And we're just servants for the meantime and we're going to be held accountable. Well, we're preparing for God's judgment. How else? We'll jot this down. By minimizing the thoughts of others and by maximizing the thoughts of God. Check out verse 3. In verse 3, Paul continues, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. He's minimizing the thoughts of others and he's maximizing the thoughts of God. Uh, The word for judged there means examined, investigated, and appraised. Uh, In other words, Paul is saying, I don't get to do my own performance evaluation. God does my performance evaluation. How how would your boss react if you went up to him and you were like, hey, I already did my performance review for this year. There you go. There you go. You you don't even need to worry about it. I already took care of it. Uh, That's not the way things work, right? Uh, And that's not the way things work in God's church. He gets to do the review. And it's not just an annual review. It is a cumulative review of your entire life that's coming. And so therefore, based on that, Paul's like, I don't care about what other people think. I care about what God thinks. And think of, listen to what he says here. He says, it is to me a very small thing what you or other people think of me. Uh, Check out this picture. This is a picture of a very small thing. This is a a Taiwanese miniature sculptor uh, carved a tiger which is small enough to pass through the eye of a needle. That's a ballpoint pen there, and that's a little bitty tiger on top of the, the needle. And it could go through the eye. Uh, it's a millimeter tall, and he made that to mark the year of the tiger. Now, that is a very small thing. And let me ask you this. When it comes to what other people think of you, uh, when it comes to what other people say about you and how worried and concerned you are about the thoughts of others, can you honestly say it is a very small thing? what they think of you. It's a very small thing what my friends think of me compared to God. It's a very small thing what my family members think of me compared to God. It is a very... Can you say that honestly? I mean, when this verse started rattling around in my own heart probably a year ago, and I read this, and I knew I was going to preach through this book at some point, it it hit me like, it's not a very small thing what people think of me. It's not. I, I care what people think of me. And and stepping into the senior pastor role in a Harvest Church, um, you'd be surprised at how many people want to share their thoughts about how the church should be run, how how we should do worship, how the preaching should go, and how we should do various ministry. I mean, emails, phone calls, in-person, impromptu meetings. And there is just a flood, a surge of the thoughts of other people. And, and to take all of that in, there's honestly then comes this introspect. Well, maybe we should be doing it this way. Maybe I'm not doing it that right. And, and this, is the, this is the thoughts of what people are thinking. And it can drive you, if you're not careful, to a place of insecurity. And, and, and it gets dangerous when the thoughts of others are, um, are louder to you than the thoughts of your God. You get that? 
I don't know where you're at with this, but maybe like me, you feel convicted about this. Maybe, maybe you've even been driven to an obsessive level of fear and of concern over your image, uh, you know, what, what other people think of what your friends think of you, what boys think of you, and it's driven you to a level of obsession so that it's become bondage. And you know what? God's thoughts have to become heavier to you. God's thoughts have to become louder to you. That's the solution. That's the only solution for when the thoughts of other people become a very big thing. It's when the thoughts of God become bigger that the thoughts of people become smaller. And that's how you get ready for Judgment Day. All right? When you're choosing your conduct and viewing yourself and defining yourself from what God has said about you, that's when you get ready for Judgment Day. But it's when other people drown it out. Now, I don't want you to use this, all right? Teenagers in particular, you've got to listen up here, all right? Kenny, are you listening to me? Now, you don't get to use this on your parents. The next time you get in trouble, you don't get to be like, well, what you think of me is a very small thing. I was listening in church this last weekend. All right. I'm not saying, I'm not saying to just be like, yeah, whatever to your boss or whatever to your husband or whatever to your parents. All right. Hear me on this. The thoughts of God must grow greater to you. Then the thoughts of others become smaller. It's not that they don't matter. It's just that compared to what God thinks of you, they're minuscule. Well, we're preparing for God's judgment. We're acting like a servant. We're minimizing the thoughts of others. And then he goes on to say this, jot this down, because everything will be exposed and evaluated. Uh, verse 5, he says in verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation uh, from God. The Corinth, they thought they had it all together. They were like, yeah, okay, we know Paul's a bonehead. We all agree on that. Apollos is like, wow, we all agree on that, right? So they're making these distinctions uh, about God's messengers, and Paul's like, don't be doing that before the time comes when God hands out the praise. Uh, we also learn that Paul is, do you see it? He's elevating Jesus uh, to his proper place so that these people get put in Corinth in their proper place. Listen to what he says about Christ right here. He says that Christ, first of all, will return. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's coming a day when Jesus Christ, my son, we've, we've, we've taught our children this truth, and my son sometimes will say to me, Dad, when is, when is the wildest twumpet going to blow? I said, I don't know, buddy, I don't know, but you'll hear it, trust me. You'll, oh, darn it, I thought it was going to blow today. <laughs> They'll say that. And, and just the thought of Jesus coming back should fill you with joy because he's going to come back. He will return. And what's he going to do? He will have authority to evaluate your life. And his judgment will be unabridged. It will be exhaustive. It will be complete. And it's not just going to be on the things that you've done. It's going to be on the things that you've said, the things that you've thought, the reason that you did the things you did. That's how comprehensive this judgment is going to be. And Paul notices this. And just at the very moment when you could be like, uh-oh, I'm going to be in big trouble then. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, listen to our example here. Isn't it amazing that Paul says, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. How could he say that? I'm not aware of anything against myself. In other words, currently, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have a favorable judgment. I really believe that. Do you recognize who's writing this? This guy was a monster. This guy was a murderer. This guy was a hypocrite. This guy was on the way to throw men, women, and children in prison and to cast his vote for their death. 
when Christ shouted down to heaven and knocked him on the ground and saved him by grace, how could this guy say, I'm not aware of anything against me? Well, it's because he was a forgiven man. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16 says this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But get this, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. How, how could he write that? Maybe you would say, maybe you would say to yourself, well, I, I already know that when judgment comes, I just have no hope. I mean, if people knew what I've done in my past, if they, if they even knew the things that right now are hidden, um, they wouldn't even talk to me. Hey, listen, if Paul can say, I'm not aware of anything against me. If Paul can look ahead to Judgment Day with confidence that he's going to be accepted, you can be accepted by God through Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That if we were actually able to determine the most sinful person in this room right now, and we laid it all out, we gave, and we voted, and it was like, yep, it's you. You're it. Wow. <laughs> Stand up. I mean, let do you understand that if it's true that you were the most sinful person in this room, I mean, comparatively, Paul was a monster. And honestly, even the least sinful person in this room to God is a monster when it comes to sin. And you must be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you get that? And so how, how could you have any hope? Well, everything's going to be exposed and evaluated. How can you have any hope? It's only like Paul if you receive the mercy of God and you realize he's been patient with you, and you ask him for forgiveness that you can be saved. And then there's this ongoing process, though, where Paul now keeps a clear conscience before God. In Acts 24, 16, he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So I'm, I'm not aware of anything in my past. I'm not aware of anything in my present. He is keeping a good walk, but he still gives the performance evaluation, the report card to God, and says, But I'm not... I'm not the one who's going to fill that out. God's the one who's going to fill that out. And that has to be our attitude. This is what it means to be preparing for God's judgment. And it's the first mark of maturity in God's church. Well, moving on to the second, the second one that he gives us, you can jot this down, is I am displaying humility. I'm displaying humility. Check out verse 6. In verse 6, he goes on to write this. I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, they have a pride problem in Corinth. They are, the word for puffed up means to be f like a bellows, just to be full of yourself. Um, and can you picture it? There are some who just, they're just radiant. When they show up to church, the way, they, the way they carry themselves, they're just regal and, and smart and, oh, good morning. And, and, and they're willing to greet the lower people, but they are, they are a somebody. Do you know those people? Sometimes they show up in God's church. They want everybody else to know that they are a somebody. They want you to know the influence they have, the job they have, the money they have, the house that they, they really want you to know. Uh, and um, this is what it means to be puffed up. And they're trying to elevate 
themselves over each other and to gain more influence and more power and more say in God's church. Um, Thankfully, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our day. This must have been just a thing in the Apostle Paul's day because people don't behave like that today in God's church. Uh, Pride was their problem, and the mature Christian displays humility. And here's the thing. They didn't even know that it was a problem. Somebody once said pride is like bad breath. Everyone else knows you have it but you. Isn't that true? And boy, they, they had it. So Paul here is challenging them and saying, you know, we've applied this to us and, uh, and you're supposed to be applying it to you. And, uh, and so there's three sub points to this one as well. I'm displaying humility. Why? Well, here's the first one, because I owe everything to him. I owe everything to him. Do you understand this? Do you understand that all of your possessions ultimately came from God? Do you understand that if he didn't give you the health, the intelligence, the ability, the connections, if he didn't give you the, the upbringing. Do you understand how it all is traced back to him? It's a very fundamental moment in the Christian's life when they understand that everything that they have and everything that they are is from God. Um, and no more of this trying to retain my own ownership or glorying in myself for what I've made of myself or the hard work I put in at school uh, or None of that. You ultimately trace your talents and your gifts and your abilities way back to God who gave you everything that you have. And if you haven't gotten to that point yet, maybe even a moment in your life where you have symbolically transferred ownership of all of yourself and your stuff and your being back to God, get there. Where there's nothing that you cling to and say, it's mine, I got it, I am it, It's God's. I'm God's. This is God's. It will release you from a tremendous amount of stress when God's roof gets a leak in it. It will release you from a tremendous amount of stress when God's car breaks down or when God's child goes off the wagon. Uh, It will release you from so much stress. I don't know if you've gotten there yet, but understand that everything, you owe everything to God. Then you won't be glorying in yourself and competing with others for this status and privilege. Look what I have. Paul's like, what do you have that you haven't gotten? It's a gift. It'll help you with pride. Hey, Thanksgiving is this week, and I wonder where you're going to be, what table you're going to be around, but what a chance this is for you to witness to people who you're sitting with. I don't know when you're going to have the chance, but you will have the chance to speak, and you will have the chance to give glory to God for something in your life. Okay, And I don't know what it is, but when the time comes, I want you to remember this moment right now that I'm challenging you, challenging you to tell someone that you owe everything to God. Maybe, maybe if you suggest that we pray before Thanksgiving meal, maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're talking to someone, but bring it up. Say, you know what, ultimately, you know what, I owe everything to God. I'm just so grateful that he's given me every single thing that I have. I'm just so, so glad. Say that. Turn the conversation or the meal or whatever heavenward and and tell him that you owe him everything and that will be a display of humility. Well, the second thing he says here is, uh, I'm displaying humility, jot this down, because in this world, you will have trouble. Display humility because in this world, you'll have trouble. Verse 8, check it out. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Can you sense his sarcasm? Already you have become, already you have everything that you want. You have become kings 
And would that you did reign so that we might share this, this rule with you. They thought, in their own mind, it was like coming to Corinth was like coming to the Magic Kingdom. It was like Disney World. We got a picture of it here. It was like the, the happiest place on earth, the holiest place on earth. They got it all together. Okay, do you understand that in the coming weeks we're going to talk about things in this church like, like sexual immorality, incest, prostitution, homosexuality, marriage and divorce, eating food that was sacrificed to idols, going to idol temples and participating in the rituals. And they're like, oh, we got it all together. It's like utopia. And he's like, all right, already you have become heaven. Wow, it's like heaven's there, huh? And then he draws out a contrast. Um, So he goes on to say in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Hey, in this world you will have trouble. They wanted heaven, and they wanted it now. And so they were willing to compromise doctrinally. They were willing to bend morally. They were willing to fight with each other to gain prominence. Do you get this? Why? Because they wanted their heaven now. They didn't want to be servants, slaves, lowly. They didn't want the lower jobs on the totem pole in church. They didn't want to be in the parking lot. They wanted to be on the platform. Uh, Do you get this? Do Do you understand how displaying humility means willing to suffer and to have trouble for the sake of Christ. Um, They were willing, Paul was willing to become a spectacle, to become a fool, to be weak, to be dishonored so that the work of Christ might go forward and Christ might be exalted. But here the Corinthians, they were just worried about their own glory and pleasure and comfort. And so this leads to the third sub-point, displaying humility, owing everything to him, you will have trouble. And then by enduring persecution, jot that down, By enduring persecution. Verse 12, it says, And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. These two words, the scum of the world. Do you know what these words mean? The one of them means like the stuff that's scraped off of plates and goes in the garbage disposal. Um, the other one means the stuff that's washed off of you after a hard day's work. So we're like, we're like garbage disposal goop. We're like shower drain clog, Paul says. That's us. But you, you, you are kings. And he, he sees it as a problem. You're not supposed to be kings here. In this world, you will have trouble, Christ said. But take heart. I have overcome the world. What else does he say? Listen to this. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Because this is how your fathers treated the false prophets. Christ expects you to suffer hardship for him by working hard, but by speaking up for the truth. And you're going to take it. You are going, if you start loud and proud telling people that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is coming at you. Uh, maybe, you're a, maybe you're a football fan. If you are, you know Tim Tebow. He's an NFL quarterback. 
Uh, and he is getting headlines because he is an outspoken Christian. Hey, listen, he is willing to publicly declare his allegiance to Jesus Christ. It started in college. We've got a picture here. In college, he would write Bible verses on the paint under his eyes. You see that? Uh, the biggest one was when he wrote John 3.16 under his eyes uh, during a championship game. And um, after he wrote that, 92 million people searched for John 3.16 on Google during the game or shortly thereafter. 92 million people. Why? Because they're obsessed with this athlete. Look at him. Oh, look at that. And, oh, what is that? John 3.16. I'm going to Google it. Whoop. And, that, and it didn't stop there because later he wrote a different verse, uh, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, and then 3.43 million people searched Tim Tebow, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 together after that game. Millions of people, why? Because he's willing to show others publicly, hey, I, I'm a Christian, I just want you to know that. In fact, there's a statue of him down in Florida at his college, and on the statue of him, they've got John 3.16 under his eyes. How cool is that? Is there any wonder what this guy stands for? No, there's no question. Uh, and so people picked up on this. So now in the NFL, there's controversy because his fans are buying his jersey, but they're printing, check this out, his jersey with Jesus' name on the back uh, because they know that he's a Christian. Now, some people are criticizing that, saying, well, they think he's Jesus, but uh, they just know he's playing for his Lord. Um, so in your life, I mean, I don't know how you would do it or if you do it, but just ask yourself this. How are you doing at enduring persecution? Uh, it's a humbling thing to be willing to endure persecution for your Lord. But are you willing? Uh, are you willing, or, or sadly, do you go dark when you're supposed to let your light shine? Uh, when the moment comes, do you fall silent when you're supposed to speak up? Uh, if there's even a crack in the door and something spiritual comes up, do you just barge through it and get the conversation going? Or do, or do you just shrink back quietly? It's, it's a discipline to begin naming the name of Christ in casual conversation. And I, I'll tell you, it is not natural at first. It, the name of Jesus Christ stings the ears in our nation. You understand that? Saying the name stings the ears. Say it in a high school classroom. Say it at a business meeting. Uh, say it at the family party. It, it, it stings to hear it. And there's an instant, instant reaction in the hearts of the people when you say the name of Jesus. And so it takes a dedicated effort on your part to begin naturally saying it so that it becomes so natural it's like saying the name of your child. It, it just rolls off your mouth. And it's hard. But you have to discipline yourself to endure persecution. And then when you do it, you know, then there's a, way, there's a right way and a wrong way, all right? And it says here, <laughs> when we are reviled and persecuted and slandered, we bless, we endure, we entreat. Okay, so you don't get to go the atomic option and be like, all right, that's it. Everyone at this party is going to hear it. Here it comes. No, 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 no. The way that you represent your Lord matters. And you have to always maintain a good testimony, especially to those who are hostile towards you, because you want them eventually to have a change of heart and to receive Christ, right? I was the kid in Stag High School making fun of the Christians. I could tell you their names. I knew that they wore the Christian shirts. And I, I was the one who's like, <laughs> did your mom address you today, nerd? You're wearing your Christian shirt. Oh, that's so cute. And I can tell you their names. And listen, I can tell you how they responded to my persecution. And many of them did not respond well. Either they went quiet 
they were apologetic or they fought back. All right? I'm not holding it against them. I was, the, I was the guy who was causing up. I was the Apostle Paul. But here's the thing. There are people in your life who need your testimony and God's going to use it to save them. But you have to be willing. It's a humility thing. It's a humbling thing to endure persecution for your Lord. So how are you doing at that? How are you doing at being a servant? Preparing for God's judgment. How are you doing at displaying humility? Moving on here to the third mark of maturity. How are you doing at practicing what you preach? Jot that down. I am practicing what I preach. In verse 14, Paul says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So he's, he's invoking this like, I'm, I'm like your father and you're like my spiritual kids. I'm not, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to push you down into the dirt. I'm, I'm trying to get you to, to grow up here. And If you're a parent of young children, there was a time this, this past week where you had to have this little parental chat with your little rug rat, right? It, my, I had to have one last night with Jared. It was 9 o'clock. We had people over, so he was getting to bed late. 9 p.m. And you know what he wanted to do? Uh, he wanted to, to play his Lego Star Wars game on the Wii right now. Dad, can we play the Lego Star Wars game right now? He loves being Yoda. He gets to run around with a lightsaber. And I'm like, but it's 9 o'clock. We've got to get in bed. And oh boy, it, he just like threw down. It was like he wanted to play it. He wanted to play it. Hey, buddy, you need sleep. You've got church tomorrow. You can't be angry at the teachers or they're going to say bad things about me and I care what people think. And so <laughs> I gave him this whole speech, right? He still wanted to play it. And here this is what's going on with Paul in this church. He's like, listen, I'm like, I'm like your father in the faith here and, and I don't want to really... I don't want to break you apart, but you've got to hear me on this. Um, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Okay, do you see that? To remind you of my ways as I teach them everywhere in every church. My ways line up with my teaching. <clears throat> then he says, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Okay, so there's their words, and then there's their ways, and, and oh, they're talking, but when I get there, I'm going to find out what they're doing because there is a discrepancy. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love and a spirit of gentleness. He's confronting them of their hypocrisy, and he's challenging them to be imitators of him, putting the teachings of God into practice. So not only were they proud, not only were they self-glorying, uh, but, but here they were hypocrites. They were faking it. Uh, and nothing hurts God's church as much as hypocrisy. Okay? When you talk to people who don't go to church, don't believe in Christ, one of the first things that comes out of their mouth if you ask them why is guess what? Oh, yeah, Christians. Oh, yeah, I know some Christians. Yeah, yeah, I was raised by some Christians. And, uh, oh, yeah, sure, we'd go to church, and, and they'd listen to the priest, and then we'd leave, and it was like, did they even hear that? Did, so they will point to the hypocrites as their own re- Now, it's not a good excuse, and it's certainly not going to get them by on Judgment Day. But hypocrisy hurts God's family. Hypocrisy hurts your family. Uh, hypocrisy hurts your marriage. Hypocrisy hurts you at work when they can't trust that you are who you say you are Sunday morning. And this is a huge deal. Um, 
This past week, Stag High School invited all of these religious leaders into the, uh, up near the principal's office. And there was a local imam from the Muslim community, and there were several evangelical leaders. There was a few priests. And we all got in one room, and we started talking about how we could partner together to, to get the children heading in the, in the right, and the parents, heading in the right direction in the community. And uh, there are significant points of agreement. I have no problem meeting with them to help do that. But the reason the principals saw fit to do this is because the kids, the teenagers, are um, one person at home, one person with friends, one person in the classroom, one person on the volleyball court, one person in the party, and they have to all come together if they're going to create responsible citizens, kids with character, and uh, I really respect that the principal sees that. He sees that what happens here should line up with what happens on the soccer field. And if it doesn't, there's a problem. And what happens in the classroom should line up with what happens at the party. Um, And that's one of the biggest things that kids are facing today is they've got all these voices. There's this mosaic picture of what their life should be like. And and they're not the same person in many different settings. It's called hypocrisy. Am I practicing what I preach? When there's a different you here, a different you there, you're being who you need to be when it benefits you most, that's hypocrisy. And adults can be guilty of it. Teenagers can be guilty of it. Children can be guilty of it. But are you practicing what you preach? People are watching and the Lord is watching. I'll never forget when my oldest daughter, Ellie, and I were riding home. I picked her up from something. And with three kids, we don't have a lot of one-on-one time. And so Ellie was in the back. and We were talking. I had the radio on. And for whatever reason, there was a sermon on, and Tony Evans, you know who Tony Evans is? He's preaching this sermon. And Tony Evans, I mean, he's got, when he's saying something, everybody listens. And he was talking about fathering. And he said something like this. Dads aren't around enough, and their kids resent them for it. And absentee fathers who aren't home for their kids will have kids who grow up resenting them because they weren't there for them. And I'm like, I better change this station. I wonder what my daughter is thinking right now. And I start getting all paranoid. Like, am I, am I home enough? Does she think that I'm out too much? Does she? And Ellie is our kid who hears everything. Maybe you've got that kid in your family. Ellie hears everything, everything the grown-ups are saying, and I know she's listening, okay? But if I change it, she's going to be like, why'd you change that, Dad? Now I'm in trouble. <laughs> but really, for an introspective moment, I knew, and it hit me like, boy, there are just so many pastors who their kids just later so resent them. And I, I was, I'll use the word vulnerable at that moment, and I was really wondering what she was thinking. Um, and, and I'm not even kidding you. So then Tony Evans keeps preaching, and, uh, and he gets done, and we pull in the driveway, and I turn the radio off. And Ellie said, I will never forget this, Ellie said, Dad, you're not like that. And I was like, What? She's like, you're not like that. You're not like what that man was just saying. You're better than that. And I was like, oh. And these like, tears welled up in my eyes. Now listen, I am not a perfect father. I mean, I am far from it. And there are nights where I have to ask forgiveness for my parenting for that day. Okay, but that day, that moment, she was evaluating me. And by God's grace... I'm practicing what I preach in her mind right now. And it's got to continue. And in your life, your kids, the people at work, they are watching you. They are watching you. Especially if they have got beef with your faith. Just wait until you slip up. 
and, and just wait until they point it out. They will shout it from the rooftops. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to practice what you preach. Paul here has fatherly affections for his spiritual kids. He wants them to grow up. He wants them to be ready for judgment day. He wants them to be mature in the faith. And next, next time I preach, we're going to turn a corner here and, and start talking about some specifics in this church that were going wrong. But for now, this closes out the first four chapters. It's a perfect time for you to evaluate where you stand with the Lord. Just look into your own heart and ask yourself this. Are you truly preparing for God's judgment? I mean, are you really, even if you're a Christian, are you looking into your life? Are you spotting areas of hypocrisy? Are you, are you seeing areas of sin and bondage that you know that the Lord has been wanting to change? And, and are you willing to have the strength and the faith to go before him this morning and to release, release those areas through repentance so that when you appear before him, that's not going to come up? Are you willing to do that? Maybe if you're not a Christian and, and maybe somebody dragged you here to church this morning and you don't even know why you came, uh, and yet something about what I have preached today is burning in your heart the thought that you could be forgiven of everything in your past and go to heaven, something about that is appealing. Hey, listen, the Bible says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation and the time to receive forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been far too concerned with the thoughts of other people. It's been affecting you. It's been driving you to a place of bondage. Maybe today it's time to say, Lord, make, make these very small things to me compared to your thoughts. Whatever it is, let's all go before the Lord right now and close our eyes and bow our heads. And as we close out these first four chapters, let's make sure that we're in a right standing with God, that we respond to his voice. Father in heaven, what... What powerful verses we've been through so far. But most powerfully, the thought of the Apostle Paul saying he's not aware of anything against himself. Lord, I wonder if there are some here tonight who would admit there, there is plenty that they know of that's going to come up on Judgment Day. <clears throat> and Lord, I wonder if they, they believe what I'm saying, that you're willing to fully forgive them of all of their sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, prompt them to give their lives to Christ right here and right now so that they can have peace with you and a clear conscience. Lord, they may want to pray in their own hearts something like this. Father God, I confess freely that I have sinned. Boy, have I sinned. But here, I respond to the truth about Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for me. I believe he rose again, and I ask for the free gift of eternal life by faith. Lord, those who receive Christ this morning, may you wash their heart of all iniquity, and may you clear their conscience of all guilt. May they be able to say with confidence that they are no longer aware of anything that will come up in the judgment. Father, I pray for your church, for believers here. <clears throat> Something came up in their hearts this morning. Maybe it's the fear of what others think. Maybe it's areas of hypocrisy. But, Lord, I just pray that they would right now surrender these areas to you. Lord, my prayer is that they would 
understand that they don't have to be perfect, but they do have to be godly. And sin grows in the darkness, but if it's brought into the light, freedom is found. So I pray that this morning your people would bring their sin into the light and confess it right now in their own hearts. Lord, that they would make these areas right with no more excuses in their family, at work. May they be good witnesses. And may they be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Father, give us this strength as a church. Grow us up that these marks of maturity might be written on all of us. Lord, this is our prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.